from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 21st. Today, a divide in America's Catholic community. Canada reckons with the legacy of its indigenous schools and giving after loss. Your Eminences, Your Excellencies, the first action item, number three. Last week, the American bishops took a vote that could be a first step towards limiting who gets communion, including pro-abortion rights lawmakers like Joe Biden. Michelle Borstein covers religion for The Post. She spoke to producer Lena Muhammad. Next is action number seven from the Committee on Doctrine. Does the body of bishops approve the request of the Committee on Doctrine to proceed with the drafting of a formal statement on the meaning of the Eucharist in the life of the Church? Majority of members present and voting is needed. The action passed with a vote of 168 in favor, 55 opposed, 6 abstentions. So for people who didn't grow up in the Catholic faith, what is communion? Communion is considered the central kind of rite and ritual of Catholics that keeps them literally a little little C, like in communion with each other and with God. And that's when, for people who have been to a Catholic service, when you see them go up to the priest and the priest can give them like a wafer and a drink that represent the body and blood of Jesus. So it means it's this kind of mysterious, you know, ritual where God is supposed to be in you at that moment. And under Catholic teaching, you're supposed to be in a certain state when you when you do this. And over the centuries, Catholic teaching has changed about exactly how communion works. Like when it first started in the early centuries, a lot of people didn't take communion because they, you know, there was such a kind of emphasis on the rigidity of being in the right state. And then it became more popular, and then they had different rules about how often each year you were supposed to confess and take communion, whether you were supposed to be fasting for many hours beforehand or just one. So there's been, you know, there's been fluxes in sort of its popularity, but I mean, it's become much more common and regular part of people's worship in recent years. And then why is this such an an important part of the experience of being Catholic? In Catholicism, which is the biggest faith uh, group in the United States, there's a lot of what you would call kind of powerful ritual. You know, when you think of Catholic churches, you're like, it's ornate and there's, you know, pictures, you know, and, and sculptures of Jesus on the cross and and the smells of the incense. And, you know, it's a very intense kind of bodily, people say often it's like a very bodily kind of faith. Mm-hmm. So you have this image of sort of you know, ingesting God and being one with God. So, I mean, it's it's usually capitalized communion, but it's also little c, like that you are saying, you know, that you are part of this community, part of part of the Catholic faith when you when you take communion, and and some and a lot of people, I mean, especially right now, you know, having been, you know, so many people being away from that service for for the past year. For many people, whether they go each week or they go a couple times a year, it's a very like intimate part of 
their their life there you know and and technically you know i mean if you're you're supposed to you know say confession regularly you're going through these rituals that you embrace and believe and that means so much to you and communion is sort of the culminating one and, and the church can just like stop someone from doing this? I mean, it feels like, you know, stopping someone from praying. Praying, right. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, most people would tell you like, this doesn't happen. I mean, that church, you know, Catholics don't get grilled like when they show, when they appear for communion. I mean, what technically you're, it's supposed to be the onus is on the worshiper, right? Because you're, it's supposed to be that you present yourself when you know you're in the right state of mind. And Catholicism talks a lot about the primacy of conscience. So all these things are kind of, you know, weighing in the picture. Um, but the difference with something like this is that Biden is a public official. I mean, for people who are, you know, a little bit older, they can certainly remember the church would not give communion to people who were uh, divorced and remarried outside of the church or people who were living together who weren't married. It's something that I think was at one time like more communally enforced where, you know, the, the church was just, was more rigid and people sort of policed each other more and it just wasn't done. You know, if you were in a situation where you know, you were living with somebody or you had a child and you weren't married or whatever the, whatever the situations were and you hadn't gone through the process of confessing and getting permission, you just didn't go. Now, obviously, the country is, you know, has much more diverse views and Catholics, American Catholics have very similar views as the American public in general when you pull them on all these things, whether that's support for abortion rights, which a majority of Catholics hold, to, you know, LGBTQ rights and stuff like that. Never mind getting into non-sexual issues, you know, whether that's capital punishment or, you know, helping the poor and that kind of thing. So, I mean, you don't have people being turned away, except you have had, especially since the 1980s, what some people call sort of derisively like a wafer watch, where politicians, Catholic politicians who supported abortion rights have been have been watched. And so you had, you know, Mario Cuomo and Dick Durbin in Illinois and John Kerry had many bishops in 2004 when he was running, threatening to not give him communion. And actually Joe Biden was denied communion last fall uh, in the Southeast when he was, I think he was just on the campaign trail. Hmm. How did President Biden respond to all of this? President Biden has barely spoken the word abortion since he's been president. I mean, he's really, we've reached out to him for comment you know, last week and over, you know, weeks of preparing for this. And they, they, there's never been any comment from his administration. He was asked on Friday about it. The Catholic bishops are moving on this resolution that would pre- prevent you and, and others who've um, supported abortion from receiving communion. Are you concerned about the rift in the Catholic Church? And how do you feel personally about that? That's a private matter, and I don't think that's going to happen. I'm assuming he meant I don't think me or others will be turned away from communion. But we have a abortion rights case coming before the Supreme Court soon. So it really puts his presidency in a conflict with part of his church. And he he talks about his faith, but not not much. I mean, he talks more about it in a personal way. He doesn't kind of analyze teachings in a lot of detail. He talks about it more in a personal way and the comfort and role that it plays in his life. I mean, this feels like it could be perceived like as a double standard because, you know, uh, Bill Barr, attorney general under the Trump administration, is Catholic and he revved up the, the federal death penalty. I mean, was he censured for it? 
Well, see, this is right. Okay. So whether, when you look at other things, whether it's, you know, some Catholics have raised, you know, Bill Barr and the death penalty or Catholic lawmakers and the treatment of immigrants, uh, the, you know, Muslim travel ban. I mean, many things, you know, racism is against Catholic teaching as well. You know, Catholic teaching is heavily focused on welcoming immigrants and refugees. So then you kind of get into this, you know, which sometimes you'll hear people say, well, there's things that are, you know, basically uh, policies that are sort of subject to difference of opinion. Like you could say, you know, everybody wants to help the poor and help immigrants, but they have different ideas about how they should do that. So, you know, the death penalty is sort of in this category. It has been. I mean, recently Pope Francis said, you know, the Catholic Church is officially against the death penalty. It had always been almost, almost, almost that, but it didn't push all the way over because there was a sense that basically under criminal justice, sometimes this is justice, that you have justice up against life. This is not an innocent life the way a fetus is. So people who support, you know, what happened with Bill Barr would say, you know, technically it's different. So then you kind of get into this, well, technically is really abortion the only thing? If you're saying you're supportive of life, okay, so there is a difference between, you know, a fetus and a, you know, crazed killer or something like that. But the bottom line is, what's the goal of Catholic teaching? You know, what is it that, what if you're going to kind of negotiate to the, you know, splitting hairs, what's the crux of it? President Biden is only the second Catholic to serve as president of the United States. What do you feel like his presidency tells us about the state of the Catholic Church right now? He only won half of the Catholic vote compared to John F. Kennedy, who won, I think, somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of the Catholic vote. So, you know, basically Catholics are divided. It shines a light up to sort of, okay, who's the Catholic role model for Catholics? You know, there's kind of a fight over authority. Who becomes the bishop? Communion becomes this kind of seal of approval, you know, and so it's just very, it's very stark. You're talking about tens of millions of people in the United States and then a billion around the world. So you're going to have differences of opinion. But it's, I think it's different in the Catholic Church because you have this hierarchical system. So it's harder to just kind of be a Catholic without the infrastructure. Michelle Borstein covers religion for The Post. She spoke to Lena Muhammad, who produced this story. I'm Amanda Coletta, and I cover Canada for The Washington Post. Amanda has been reporting on findings on the sites of Canada's residential schools, where it's estimated that more than 4,000 Indigenous children died between 1883 and 1996. Amanda spoke to producer Emma Talkoff. In late May, Roseanne Casimir, who's the chief of the Tecumlips to Shwepmik First Nation in the southern interior of British Columbia, said that a ground-penetrating radar specialist had been surveying the grounds around what was once the Kamloops Indian Residential School, and that the specialist had uncovered evidence of an unmarked grave containing the remains of 215 children who are thought to have been students at the school. 
The Kamloops Indian Residential School for Context was once the largest residential school in Canada. It operated from 1890 to 1969, and it was mostly run by a Catholic entity known as the Missionary Oblates of uh, Mary Immaculate. And for decades, Indigenous people in the community had been saying that they believed that there was an unmarked grave on the site, uh, that there was a knowing I think American listeners may not be totally familiar. What are these residential schools and when were they active? Residential schools were government-funded, mostly church-run schools. Um, They were like boarding schools that were set up in Canada in the 19th century. And their aim was essentially to assimilate Indigenous children. There were more than 130 of them and They spanned Canada really from coast to coast to coast. Some of the schools began to close in the 1970s, but I think it's important for listeners to know that they're not necessarily part of some distant past. Uh, The last federally funded residential school actually closed in Saskatchewan in 1996. In total, more than 150,000 Indigenous children would be separated from their families and sent to the schools. Sometimes they were removed by force, and at the schools they were forbidden from speaking their languages, from practicing their traditions. They were subjected in some cases to physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, and a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was set up to investigate the schools concluded in a report in 2015 that what happened at the schools was cultural genocide and that their legacy is sort of deeply woven with the many issues that Indigenous communities continue to confront today. So it sounds like for the children that were taken to these schools, their day-to-day lives were really tough. Do we know what their lives were like? And do we also know why and how so many of them died? So residential schools were in many ways schools in name only. The schools were often quite far from Indigenous communities, and that was on purpose um, to sort of sever them from you know, the bonds that they had to their traditions and their customs and their families. The buildings were poorly maintained and unsanitary. The food was awful and children were malnourished. Discipline was strict. I spoke to one survivor. Her name is Don Hill. She attended residential school in Ontario in the 1950s. And on the first night at the school, she and her younger sister were strapped because they were scared and decided to bunk together. Many survivors speak of just an overwhelming sense of loneliness, a feeling that things weren't going to change. When we're thinking about what life was like at the schools, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission didn't mince words and said that the system essentially institutionalized child neglect. In terms of why so many children died at residential schools, children died of disease, tuberculosis, in particular influenza. It really spread quite rapidly in living conditions that were pretty unsanitary. And they also died in accidents. They died in fires. Some of them died by suicide. There were instances of children vanishing after 
they ran away. And the commission documented instances where days or weeks would pass before school officials would alert law enforcement. Parents were sometimes given very unsatisfying answers about what happened to their children. Some of them were told they ran away when it's not exactly clear whether or not uh, that happened. And part of why it's so hard to piece this together is because a lot of the records that have been disclosed they're sort of incomplete. So officials didn't record the name of the student who died, the sex of the student who died, the cause of death. Uh, sometimes deaths weren't even uh, recorded at all. And we also know that some records were purged. And how are Indigenous leaders responding to this latest finding? Many Indigenous leaders weren't necessarily surprised to learn that there was an unmarked grave outside of what was once a, a residential school. But they are angry and there is a lot of grief. Survivors have long told stories about the graves and the children who went missing or who vanished. Families have been left with really haunting questions about what happened to their children. And now we're beginning to see evidence of the numbers of children who died. We know that there were probably lots of sites similar to Kamloops that are going to come to light in the future. And we need to begin to prepare ourselves for that. Marie Sinclair is a former member of the Canadian Senate, and he also served as chairman of the Indian Residential School's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Since the revelation of what was discovered at Kamloops has come to light, I have been inundated with phone calls from survivors by the dozens, if not hundreds now. They've called me often just to cry, just to tell us, um, I told you so, I told you that this had happened, and now we're beginning to see it. And in their voices, I can hear not only the pain and the anguish, but also the anger that they're feeling about the fact that nobody believed them when they told those stories. A mass grave of children, sons, daughters, siblings, grandchildren, Potential leaders and change agents, a genocide of children who were never given the opportunity to live their lives simply because they were Indian. And that's Mary Jane McCallum in a statement to the Senate. She's also a survivor of the Indian residential school system. Remember to pass on the beautiful parts of our culture, because that is something they could never take away from us. Remember, they can never take away our love for each other. Sending love and peace to the 215 innocent and trusting souls and their families, to the Kamloops uh, First Nation, to the former students of residential schools, to our families, and to the specialists who discovered the remains. Thank you. So what comes next in the search to understand what happened at these schools? So the federal government said that it would make urgently available almost $30 million that it had set aside in its federal budget in 2019 to uncover other unmarked graves, to identify the children who died or went missing at the schools, and to commemorate them. 
The Ontario government this week said that it would also be um, providing funding to do this kind of work. There's at least one Indigenous community in Nova Scotia that is conducting um, a survey using ground-penetrating radar of uh, what was once a residential school site there. So, you know, we could see more of that. You've been speaking to survivors of the residential school system. What are they telling you? So survivors are angry. They are sad. This brings up a lot of painful memories. But, you know, they also want accountability and they are focused on the question of what now, what next? Um, Because many of them have been screaming into the void about this for decades. And while Canadian lawmakers of all political stripes have sort of expressed their condolences and, you know, said that they are shocked and promised to take concrete action, survivors are sort of at the point where they want more than just speeches. Amanda Coletta is a Canada correspondent for The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. And now, one more thing about mothers who are finding a way to give back in a moment of grief. Journalist Miriam Foley spoke to producer Ariel Plotnick. Amy Anderson, she was pregnant and expecting her baby boy Bryson. And she discovered that her baby had died in utero at 20 weeks gestation. You know, a kind of whirlwind of events followed and she found herself producing milk. She researched and she realised that she could donate her milk and that there was a real need for uh, donor milk because of its health benefits, especially to preterm babies, to preemies. So she decided to donate her milk. common is it for women to donate their breast milk after stillbirths? I believe it's still in its early days. It's happening more and becoming a little bit more commonplace. And for example, Professor Tanya Cassidy of Dublin City University, one of the experts in the field and has done lots of research and and worked in this area for years, has been working with different organisations and milk banks to produce literature for grieving mothers. And this is to educate the health professionals and the mothers. And she said, for example, obviously, if you're going to educate the mothers, first you need to educate the health professionals so that they, when this takes place, can then tell mums what they can do or what their options are. What are some of the effects that mothers like Amy have noticed on their mental health after they decide to donate their breast milk post the experience of having a stillbirth? Something that Amy said, which I thought was very striking, was that it was an expression of love and that, you know, she has so much love to give and her baby wasn't there. That expressing literally was a way of showing her love and then extending it not only to her baby, but kind of giving it as a gift to other babies who needed it. 
And I think that that helps through that phase of guilt or wondering maybe when some mums wonder what they have done, what they've done wrong. And it, it serves as a reminder that they've done nothing wrong. Miriam Foley is a freelance journalist based in Spain. Ariel Plotnik produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svarnovsky. If you have not already subscribed to The Washington Post, this is the last week to get a special deal just for podcast listeners. You can get access to everything The Post publishes for a whole year for just $29. That is less than $1 a week, and it is a great way to support the work that you hear on Post Reports. Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe, or click the link in today's show notes. Thanks. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.